Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the I have no idea. Yeah, you got me? I have Steve. I had Steve. Oh, wonderful. Okay, anyways, uh, welcome to Ghost. Paranormal just rolls through and I do have guests somewhere, but I have no idea where they are. They're, they're lost in. Now I just lost. Cal, you there? Yeah, I'm here now. The... What the hell? This is uh, this is like totally messed. Anyways, well, internationally, I'm Ron Kolick, and Steve Parsons is somewhere. He has actually two Skype addresses, so you may be calling the wrong one there, Mister uh, Tojinet. But anyways, uh, Cal, thanks for joining us again. Cal? Cal? What the hell's going on today? Uh, Stephen Parsons, the one that has the blue book on it. The other one is an old one. It's no longer good. So try that one. Cal, are you? Yeah, I'm here now, but it's coming through my laptop. I don't know what the hell's going on. Carry on. I can hear you now, whether I can hear you through the headphones or not. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. All right. We're, you're good now. And uh, hopefully we have. Now we got Steve. I've done a great job. I'm just terrific. Oh, Roy, too. Let's not forget. Uh, Steve, can you hear us? I can hear you loud and clear. All right. So everything was straightened out now. Anyways, welcome back to Ghost Chronicles. The paranormal strikes when you leave during this show. Uh, I am Rakolis, your host, and joining me is... My co-host, the ghost in and ghost hunting, Steve Parsons, and our guest from last week, who we just can't get rid of, Doctor uh, Doctor. <laughs> Hopefully, you can hear us. Well, we can all hear um, each other, but we just can't hear you now. So, I guess I'll just have to press on. 
Just checking. All right. Oh, you are there. So I can hear mm. you, but yeah, I am here. Okay. You just you, you is, keep this, cutting this, out. Oh, this is so strange. All right, testing. So testing. We lost you. No, we haven't. I hear you fine. I hear you fine. Uh, okay. This is weird. Have you got that iguana again? I don't know. I got that picture again. I think I've got paranormal. Uh, that's it, fever. you see. That's it, you see. <clears throat> so while we're waiting for Cal to join us. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, no, he's ah! back. Wait a minute. I heard something. No, he's fine. <laughs> he, he's lighting up, but he just doesn't come true. I don't know. Yeah, I'm here. Finally. Okay, now we're all here. Yes. Steve. Steve's gone. Steve. No, I was only kidding. You. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not funny. <laughs> we're already five minutes in the show, and we haven't said. They're a not missing thing. anything. That, yeah, they are. Listen, they, we've already lost it's spook- our. Uh, it's spooky. You've stuff. already lost your listener. It's just us yeah, three exactly. Now. Yeah, I just realized my fly, fly was down too, so that's not even a good thing. All right, so last week we were last week we were talking about uh, uh, we talked about Cal's pet peeve, which was the. Uh, Did you know that that um, expression um, uh, was was first discovered by was first said by William Shakespeare? Who? Pet peeve. Mm, no, the one about flies. Alas, my fly isn't done, and my end is in sight. Uh. Shakespearean quote. It is. Did they have flies back then? Oh yeah, and blue bottles and wasps. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean actual, you know, the, the thing that. You no, know. no, 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 no. I have a friend who's a. We have a friend who is uh, become a bit of an expert on Tudor costume, and they most definitely didn't have a fly. In fact, they had nothing there at all, in, except a, like a, like a flap. So yeah, and, I, um, I've seen that with the like Napoleonic tunics for especially British military. We had two buttons at the front that were, you know, either leg side. So you undid each button, then down came the flap. That's right. And down exposed the flap. In, and exposed everything in the middle. Exposed everything it did. Oh, so the flap was up by the, the waist? Yeah, uh, as though it's sort of a... Yeah. That like where the a, buttons were, so you didn't, it dropped down. Yeah, kind, like a, kind of like you have on those American um, Johnnies. Um, yeah. Johnnies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, we I don't call it. them that here. We call Johnny something <laughs> entirely different. What do you call them? Uh, <laughs> we call Johnnies condoms. No, 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 no. That's something else. You call them rubbers. We call them the erasers. I told you. <laughs> you don't want to be using a. <laughs> yeah. Excuse yeah. me, miss. Have you got a rubber? I made a mistake. Have you got any Jurex? Yeah, it wouldn't go down well in Britain. <laughs> All right, so we have <laughs> moving on. Yeah, I I don't think we can anymore. But uh, <laughs> he's outside having a pack. There we go. Who is? All right, so <laughs> so last week we we got into a pretty good discussion, a hell of a lot better than this one, uh, and we we talked about uh, Cal's Cal's pet peeve, which was what Cal. Well, we're having a conversation about people that were having a, a rant on social media, which had kind of flared up again recently about um, representation of ghost hunting on TV. 
okay. and whether it's actually giving a good portrayal or not. But this is often coming from people that, you know, have come up with their own concept of what good or bad ghost hunting might be. And, you know, thinking that there's an us and them kind of community, you know, that this is the paranormal world that, you know, it's it's a disgrace that people are watching these certain things and then copying it. But it all just seemed to be that everyone was being as bad as each other, really. So our discussion last week was about what really is good that we see on TV. Are there any good standards at all? And then Steve mm-hmm. started talking about, does anything have the potential to be good? But it just hasn't got right. there yet. So that's yeah. where we got to. So, I mean, there, there are so many different uh, ghost groups out there, ghost clubs organizations some of them take themselves extremely serious well, i guess most of them do um but there are that there are that many doing serious paranormal research though are there my <clears throat> definition of doing serious research is that if if you're going to say i'm going on an investigation tonight is that you you get something from it if you if you're if a police officer is going to conduct an investigation they're going to collect data and produce some conclusions from that data. And it's going to go to someone or something. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you're just doing it for yourself. What's the actual point? There's, there has to be a rationale behind why you do something in the first place. Mm -hmm. And if it's, if it's good research or if it's good science, then it's following that route. And so there's been a change over time in organizations. Like if we take the SPR, for example, the society for psychical research, there was one time when the journal would publish pretty much any investigating account of an apparition or poltergeist. Now, we, we don't see that so much, but that was the case. And I thought that was great that if someone got called up to go and look into something, you know, whether something was happening or not, um, they went to find out what was the cause. And if they couldn't find a cause, they might pursue it further. Steve had a good one recently with the the writing on the wall that was no more than three or foot high or something like that around, around the walls. I mean, that written up um, is is a great report. And Steve went out and did the research that he needed to, to discover what was going on. But that's my definition of research. If you're going out to do an investigation, then that's what you're doing. But there's a big difference between an investigation and a ghost hunter and events, just so people can have a good time. It might be for a charity or a good cause, or perhaps people are getting together to, to learn something about the process. So that's different from science as well. That's more like a training exercise. Right. Um, but an investigation is to collect data and do something with it. Yeah, I mean, in my course that I taught at uh, Northern Essex, it's paranormal CSI, and yeah, the CSI investigators are just that, that they have to collect evidence. Then they, they collect the evidence and tell you automatically what it is and uh, explain everything the way it is. But it, they really should be, you know, taken back to a lab or someone who expertise in certain things and, and be analyzed uh, independently from the people who are actually there. I mean, that's just my opinion. Do you agree? Don't agree? Well, I was waiting for Cal to respond, so... Um... I wait, wait, somebody... It, it, it depends what you're, you're taking back. I mean, if you're going to study a haunting, you, you can't bring it into the lab. You've got to go into the field. But fair play if, if you want someone to go out and collect data and write a report and then have someone cast their opinion on it. You could look at that as a sort of a peer review process, because if you'd written a report and submitted, submitted it to a journal, besides the editor, it would go to right. two blind reviewers to, to have a look at it. 
And I, I don't think they'd necessarily tell you exactly how the report should be written. It, it's your investigation. It's your style of writing. But if you haven't considered alternatives that they think should have been analyze, considered. But, but, but Steve can even tell you that they, they would analyze the evidence, uh, whatever it was collected, they would call it evidence, uh, the the data, that's even better, the and how it was. And to me, I think that's an important part of the investigation. Uh, Steve, you, do you agree with that or not? I completely agree. But where I get completely disillusioned is um, people find it very easy to say the words, but they find it incredibly difficult to uh, do the work. Yeah, talk the talk, not walk the walk, or walk the walk, not talk the talk. Now, you see that right from the, very, you know, at all layers. You see it from the enthusiastic groups who spout rubbish on their investigation, Facebook events, investigations, they're not investigations. But equally, and most frustratingly of all, is you see it from the top down, from the organisations that ought to know better. Um, in, including the venerable organisations out there, where you see this same endemic poor approach, this misunderstanding of what uh, actually an investigation uh, amounts to. This idea that uh, you've got a degree in psychology or you work in a department that deals with, or you, you even are a member of an organisation that does suddenly conveys uh, the belief in some people that they now are equipped to carry out investigations. They misunderstand the uh, the requirements of an investigation, which is primarily to gather data and information about exactly. somebody's experience. And rather than do that, the science, some of the some of these science minded individuals decide that what they should do beforehand is to discuss a case between themselves and hypothesize based upon very rudimentary sketchy amounts of information instead of going to like you would when you, if you went to see a doctor a doctor would run a bank of tests before he came to a diagnosis before he came to a conclusion and a treatment regime but and he what, would send you to a specialist too if if it wasn't so yeah great. but what a lot of, well that's only part of the testing process but what yeah. a lot of these people do is they feel um that because they're part of an organization or that they think that they have expertise conferred upon them by by that membership that they should read an account and it would be like visiting the doc or reading a you know the the message from the doctor's receptionist from his secretary that says oh he's got this this and then decided well what could all of these be and then treating them for all of those conditions it's completely on its head um and what the problem is is the the academics um who are in these organizations uh, really don't understand what's required of an investigator and that they don't recognize it's a separate skill set all on its own because the investigator has to have some better than normal knowledge of physics, of psychology, of environmental monitoring, of how to actually undertake and carry out measurements in a proper defined fashion and 
there are standards governing how a measurement of temperature is taken, how a measurement of electromagnetism is taken. Even how we measure the weather is defined by international standards around the world. And yet time and time and time again, you know, it's you just want to bang your head against the wall sometimes because you see these these experts just they're as bad as the the weekend amateurs in fact it left to their own devices in five minutes they would be no no discernible difference between the two groups you've made me think of chris chris wrench's talk which i recommend anyone go and check on youtube about his parapsychology of science which i find remarkable because then there's still a lot of uh, extremists um, pseudo skeptics I'd call them that say that you know parapsychology is not and never will be a science and yet they disregard this excellent talk by Chris where he refers to a lot of books about what is a science really good books from scientists about what is science and mm -hmm. it all boils down to a science is defined on its methodology and consistent and recognized me methodology as well and if we're all following the same methodological routine and pattern against what we're looking at then we'll work better towards trying to understand what it is we're trying to investigate and the problem is you know whether we look at the amateur ghost hunter through to the academic ghost hunter if everyone's doing things their different way based on what they think they know they should be doing i know better blah 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 then it's all a bit of a mess really and i think that then springs back to what steve has done with updating the notes for the investigators of spontaneous cases ghostology and things like that it's it's not a new creation from steve steve's still doing ghost hunting and has carried on what people have already set out before if you bother to read this stuff and follow forward with that methodology then it remains consistent and we'll actually learn something more about these experiences people have if everyone's doing their own thing or not doing anything that's recognized whatsoever and not submitting it anywhere then they're wasting their time and if people are doing their own thing and submitting it and doing something completely different to what's been done before then it's not comparable not really um and so, yeah, it all gets a bit messy. So I, I have to ask, you know, as Steve brought up, if, you know, you take measurements, for instance, you could give them to mm -hmm. somebody, of course, who is uh, an expert in temperature or whatever. He mentioned a few things. But where does the psychologist fit into this picture? Uh, do they analyze the what the mindset of the the oh, uh, think? Go ahead. Well, I was going to answer that because as far as I'm aware, parascience is the only group in the country, in the UK, for uh, for instance, who have had as a mem core member of their team, somebody who focuses entirely on psychology. Um, myself and Anne Winsper, when we set up the team, divided down the jobs. Anne was much more interested in psychology and I was much more interested in the technical scientific measure because that's what I was trained to do. Um, so I focused on what I knew best. Now, we recognize the importance of psychology because psycho because what we're studying is a human experience. And psychology really is the study of human behavior, human experiences, mm -hmm. how people react and respond um, in different situations. Um, and so without without factoring in the people, you don't have a good balanced overview of the uh, case that you're investigating because you're not investigating an object moving very or incredibly rarely you're not investigating um you know, 
uh, more than you know occasional temperature variations what you're really investigating or trying to understand is a human experience and so you have to um have experts in your team on your side or who you can go to to say why are they behaving in that way what what are the factors that are, the human factors that are involved and we have a psychologist here now <laughs> and the, the marriage guess. of the two the marriage of the two why does this particular environment mm-hmm. or what's within the environment cause the person to have the mm-hmm. perceptions they're having and what does the brain seem to do when we know we expose people to this and then we know it has varying outcomes on what people think they're experiencing as well i mean we sort of laid that out in in paracoustics as well where the first half of the book steve and i decided well what do we have in our own expertise and angles that could actually make up a first half before we then turn to other contributors um, on, on their interest in sound and the paranormal? And um, so Steve outlined, you know, physics of sound. What is sound and, and what's the physical properties of it? But then sound can be received by humans. We, we've got ears and a brain that work together to actually take in sounds and then perceive what do those sounds actually mean to us? Um, but then we have it on varying levels with sight and bodily sensations. So whatever environment we're in can have an impact on how we're perceiving the environment and things we think we see or hear. But then there's that psychology element from what do we previously know about this environment? What have we been told? Our religious beliefs, our upbringing, our education, our biases, all of these can affect what we think we might have seen or heard or felt while we're in that environment. So it is a marriage of various things. And this is why parapsychology is not just, um, you know, a field of psychologists. There's a lot of people that have been involved in the field that have come from varying backgrounds of philosophy, anthropology, history, physics, you name it. There was even um, Manfred Kassiri, he, his background was Egyptology. So, you know, looking at specific aspects of human history and anthropology as well. Um even some people that just would mention this before about qualifications or not. Raymond Bayless was a very good investigator. Um, he had no formal educational training or background. He was a landscape painter, but mm-hmm. he'd read and he'd read and he read. And his main obsession and interest was field investigations of ghosts and hauntings. And he was the person who trained up D. Scott Rogo. And Rogo was pretty similar. R- Rogo's educational background was in music. And he dropped all of that, all of that interest in music for pursuing the paranormal and just clearing himself up by just reading and reading and doing and doing. I would argue, I, I, I would agree with Cal, um, because when you look at, uh, when I worked in, in, in uh, the petrochemical industry, um, you would see academics arriving uh, straight from university, postgraduate, they had their degree, uh, they knew every detail of the plant that we were working on. Um, they knew what was happening in every vessel, every pipe, every, and they would come up to you and say, how do you turn uh, the valve on? <laughs> that was a genuine question I was asked. How do you turn the valve on? I said, have you got taps in your house? <laughs> well, it's just a big tap because the basic stuff, and you, you see this so often. Um, and, you see that, I mean, even inside the SPR, where you have, you know, many, many, many different areas of expertise, um, but they don't come together. And when they do come together, um, or where they do come together, 
I should say, there is this gross misunderstanding, almost a, a sneering of investigators, this this idea that anybody can do it. And of course, anybody can with a degree of experience, uh, with a degree of uh, common sense and with the application of knowledge. But this idea that, you know, just because you're a member of a, of a society or, or one of its committees or mm. that you suddenly have the ability to conduct an investigation. Now, this is exactly the same behavior that you see from the audiences of television programs where they see hairdressers and pet store owners and makeup ladies and bin men, sorry, dust men, refuse collectors, um, all being investigators. And some of them are truly excellent investigators. But the, the rest of them have learned from their mates on social media and that's why you see this proliferation of stupid stuffed toys, cat balls, musical carousels. And the latest one I saw an advert for for today was a $200 music box that <laughs> that's motion activated by the spirits. You're sounding more and more like Harry Price when he itemizes things the way you did that. It was the pauses between each thing. Holding hands in the dark, singing <laughs> hymns. <laughs> I've been, maybe I've been around Harry for too long, but it's just it's it's infuriatingly frustrating. The people that know how to do it are the people who are given the least amount of recognition and credibility. Hmm. I, I think I'd uh, sorry sorry Steve no sorry I, I've more or less finished there because otherwise I'm I am in I'm watching the clock as well but um it, it it's just frustrating because you know years ago I I stood up at an SPR conference and roasted them because they you know spontaneous case research which is a posh name for ghost hunting um had been sort of kicked into the long grass down the years um, as the focus turned to more academic research projects and they were equally you know they were just as important and we can learn a great deal from from them but the bias had shifted far too far in one direction and i i got on my soapbox and i started shouting and good enough the society reacted and responded in a very positive way um but the minute you sort of take your eye off the ball it reverts back to type. You have people chasing around in the dark and you have people, you know, it, it becomes the weekend amateurs, but with a badge. Mm. Yeah. I, I think going back to what you said earlier, Steve, is um, I'd add to, yes, anyone can do it. But if you do decide that you want to go and do it, be honest to yourself. If, if someone has told you this is a really good book to read and it will start you off, then read it. Don't just stick it on your shelf and say, well, I own the book. And and that is the you know the typical <laughs> attitude if you even get that far. But then well, the rest is, well, I've seen I them do it on TV myself. or this or that. we got to take a break. So unfortunately, yeah. I have to cut you off there, Cal. Damn it. Uh, damn it. I know it. You are in such a good role. Anyways, you'll listen to Ghost Chronicles International with Ron Cork and uh, Dr. Cal. Welcome to Talkinet. 
Radio with a cutting edge. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give the awards to the Parrax family. Welcome back to part two of tonight's edition of Ghost Chronicles International, where our special guest is Dr. Dr. Callum E. Cooper. And the annoying buzz in the background is your host in New England, uh, New England's own Van Helsink, Ron Kolek. And holding the the whole thing together, as usual, is the gold standard in ghost hunting. I thought it was Roy. Mm -hmm. Roy, Roy's the linchpin of the whole operation. Yeah. So, Cal, I cut you off. Did you have anything else you want to say? Or what? No, or not really. It was, it was just much. adding a tiny bit more to, to what Steve said. And, um, you know, I, I think we really hit the nail on the head, really, that, um, you know, essentially anyone can do it. Um, you've just got to be honest to yourself. And I think there's a lot of self-dishonesty with um, people that go out and do it, saying, no, we're, we're legit and we do this and that. You know you don't. You know you don't because, I've, you know, <laughs> what where's the result of what you're doing uh, get something going whether it be some yeah go on no i was just gonna say inevitably i'm going to disagree with you um because oh. i i genuinely don't believe that the majority of people realize you know you said be honest they genuinely believe in these crazy methods with cat toys and carousels and how they believe it that's for sure no no if they've only been exposed to that, if they've only watched the TV and that's what they think is legit, then fair, fair enough. But if they've been told and they keep doing it, which is, I think, where I'm more so coming from, because mm-hmm. I've seen that time and time again, then I don't think there's much of an excuse. If no one knows any better because that's all they know and they haven't been exposed to anything else and they don't know where anything else is, then, of course, that's forgiven because mm-hmm. that's all there is. Uh, yeah. how, how would you know about something you don't know about? <laughs> no, I, 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 I absolutely agree with you. Um, the problem, the problem is, is the the sources of the information is so corrupt now because they're t- it's all coming from social media and the television shows, and they the responsibility. I, I pointed fingers at the past and said, well, you know, the responsibility should also, you know, should lie with uh, the academics and the 
organizations like the SPR uh, and its American counterparts and others around the world because they should reach out and offer a resource. But as the SPR have reached out and began begun outreach programs and started to publish guidance notes, the response from the ghost hunting community. Now, there are 12,000 odd in this in the in the UK and there's about 50,000 in America at the sort of rough count. Um, I think they're been, all in my town. Yeah, I, <laughs> I has been predominantly one of who the hell do you think you are? I'm not listening. Fingers in ears. We know what we're doing. I've been doing this for you know five years. I've got unassailable proof of the existence of the afterlife because they talk to my teddy bear. Of course. And it doesn't matter how much. Well, as an example, um, during Spirit Quest a couple of years. I was ago, just going to bring that up, Steve. During Spirit Quest a couple of years ago, um, <laughs> I I had the opportunity, courtesy of Jeff Belanger, to demonstrate the SLS camera, the structured light. I can't believe you. Wait a minute. I just can't believe you brought that up. That was my. I was just going to do that, Steve. You picking my freaking brain. Dinner piece story. You've stolen. Well, he stole my lead box idea. Um, so I I I took this group of people who were there and keen to learn um i i showed them how the sls is manufacturing manifesting stick men uh, because it's programmed to look for certain patterns and shapes and when it sees these patterns and shapes it sticks a stick man on it that's what it does that's what the software that's all the software can do and i had them replicate i could that each of them was invited to pick up the SLS camera. Now, this was actually the very one used by Zach and the crew on Ghost Adventures. Exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, a, a second-rate copy. It was the real McCoy. And I had them making stick men um, in the corner of their room over there. Do one over there. Make another one over there. And they were doing it. And I thought, well, you know, I've been able to give them another perspective on on the SLS camera and the evidence that that's being presented on the television shows. Then they went in uh, for a break and some of them were speaking to Ron. And what were they saying, Ron? They said, well, that guy tried to explain it, but I know that that was a ghost. <laughs> it's like they just ignored you, even though yeah. you had given a, a logical explanation for it and and, and demonstrated how it works and everything well, else. They, but, they, they, uh, they that made was, that was Zach's camera. Wait a minute. That was yeah. Zach's camera. It can't yeah. be, you know, it has to be real. They were making the stick men, not me. I, I wasn't in control of the SLS camera. I hadn't set it up in any way. They had full control of it. They were making them exactly the same way that Zach does on the show. And they came back in and went, yeah, well, that was really cool, but um, yep. he's just a skeptic. And he, he yep. one that, when exactly. Zach has it, and he's a, he's a cool ghost hunter, and you know he says dude a lot and talks shit most of the time through a mask. <laughs> That's that the reality of it. That is the reality of it. it yeah, we have an old saying, don't we? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And my, re that's... my response to, to that would be, if, if Zach's achieved that and he has captured a ghost on it, why has it not got anywhere near peer review? In fact, it probably hasn't because he hasn't written anything up on it because it never would get there no. because it's crap. They don't understand the mechanism of peer review, Cal. If you ask people <laughs> so on TV, to... that's his peers, the people that do the same <laughs> thing he does. Yeah. 
the, I've seen uh, an elephant fly on TV. Doesn't mean they can. Oh, they can. I saw one. I saw one on. Uh, yeah, the boys were watching that that same documentary about a flying elephant in the circus. How big he is. Dumbo. Dumbo. I believe that, that was its train. name. Mm. I believe that it was drunk. a fantastic documentary. Scary. Yeah. But this, but this is this is the problem because what you're, if you watch uh, social media on a uh, Sunday morning, or even now live on on a you know seven nights a week, you will see groups who are claiming to have produced more evidence in the one hour that they're streaming live than the entirety of psychical researchers managed in a thousand years. Mm. We are either we're doing something really badly wrong or they're just crazy. This goes back to the the recent filming that I did for um, another series. And I just had enough of the comments because I knew I had to film um, my response to multiple episodes in one day. So it got really repetitive and it got to the point where I didn't want them to use sound bites in a way that made anything look any more positive than it needed to be there wasn't much positive to take away and, and so the only sound bites they've probably got if they do turn to me and use it when they say okay and what were they doing with the gadget this time you know i i just say that's not how we collect data and that, that's all they'll get and it'll move to someone else because um i, I was just having enough with this kind of portrayal that it, it stemmed from or has been exaggerated by you see it on these these live streams and stuff. And again, this, this you're not capturing any data. You're not doing anything. That's it, this is a poor portrayal, a really poor portrayal. And it's not stemmed from anything that you have read at all. It, even general books that you should have access to. Even going back to just looking at Peter Underwood's investigation of various parts of the UK that are haunted through from halls to pubs to gardens and stuff like that and some of his personal accounts or Harry Price's books you won't have touched any of those and those are you find those in charity shops all over the place and stuff it's inexcusable if you've got a passion for it to not pick those up um they won't have done anything again it's well I saw it on tv so I've copied it Mm -hmm. because that's what the scientists are doing thinking that who they've seen previously are are the people in the know those are the people to go to because look they've gained fame from it and when you do go on television, you, you you turn up on set and you find that inevitably or beforehand, uh, the researcher or the producer has said to you, well, we're going to do this experiment, this experiment and this experiment. Um, well, why are you going to do that? Because it's not going to give you any any results that are meaningful in cool. any way. That's the problem. It looks cool. Mm. You know, when you've got when you've got um, paranormal research being defined by a media uh, you know possibly a, a media postgraduate um researcher on the program armed with a clipboard whose last project was i don't know it could have been anything from from you know, hunting shooting fishing to making mashed potatoes <laughs> uh you know they go away, they sit around a table, they go, what would be a really good experiment to do? What could? And then they drag you on set. They drag Cal, they drag me, they drag others onto the set. And we have to try and <laughs> pretend, I suppose, or find some rational uh, rationale for what on earth they're doing. I've told you before, the Japanese one, I'm not going to tell you again, but, uh, you know, faced with 500 ping pong balls suspended from a ceiling. Um, 
as if it was something triumphant that this that this producer had done. And he said, what what do you think my experiments? Well, frankly, it's shit. But, you know, you're not going to pay me if I say that. So, <laughs> so, you, so you babble out some excuse, you know, some sort of half baked, you know, whilst being true to yourself. Um, you know, you, you try and throw them a lifeline. You know, it's not a total slap down. And, hope they um, use it. and I understand Carl's point of view exactly. The skeptic is dragged in at the end um, to give a few moments of counter opinion because they have to be seen to be being balanced. And that, you know, those few seconds are, are going to be heavily edited if you're not careful uh, to make it sound like you didn't say that anyway. Uh, and that will happen. I mean, I, the, when I did the winter special for, for Paranormal Capture, that was five hours of filming just on me for the day, all for less than a minute's worth of footage mm -hmm. to be shown of, of snippets. Of, you know, there was probably a couple of instances where I didn't like what snippet they'd used in relation to what I'd, I'd seen. And I thought, well, that's out of context because, you know, you've, you've shown my running commentary and not my final view on it. And you've told me to mm -hmm. give a running commentary. So my... My then second tactic in doing it the second time was you're not going to get a running commentary. You'll only get my final opinion. So I'll watch the footage and I'll stay stum. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you did. I mean, you, you learn as you go. Um, you know, I was fortunate um, when I arrived on that show, Most Haunted. Um, and I, I, I made mistakes on that. You know, I I was edited on that show as well. I've seen uh, but, it. But you learn very quickly um, if, you know, if you if you've said something that that could be edited, then you either destroy the sentence by dropping an, an F-bomb into it um, or you do something else to usurp the, the editing suite from using what you've just said. Um, you also try not to pause. You try and get everything out in one soundbite yeah. so that they can't chop it up into segments. Mm. And oh, a good way, a good way of doing that is actually to say uh, in between the words, right? Because but it makes like chop Steve, look any, anything that you've done wrong on, on Most Haunted, it, it can never be attributed because you certainly don't look like that person that was on uh, Most Haunted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, I, well, that's a compliment. But you know, there was a, there was a couple of moments on that show where, but for the fact that the editors were were good. Um, and generally, you know, sort of not very um, controversial in what they wanted. Uh, it could have, it could have gone, you know, sort of a bit wrong, shall we say? I think we um, we did well when it came to the Japanese film crew with Margan, because again, that was <laughs> that was a setup just to give a demonstration. We gained nothing out of it. It wasn't by any means a, a live investigation we, we weren't investigating anything we didn't have any data it didn't go anywhere but they wanted to see what it would look like if we were so it was two or three days worth of filming and it was you know more or less how you might see it carried carried out if you're a fly on the wall but we gave them enough different things from different people to be able to move about with their two cameramen director and translator to say now they're doing this now they're doing that so it moved from show us some examples where the the wall features if you know seen at a quick glance in the dark could be an example of pareidolia so that was filming me going around looking for those examples and then pointing them out through to and sat at a laptop filling in throughout the night people's collected reports of just sat in various rooms taking notes of how they felt 
through to filming those people sat timing themselves every 10 minutes to making those notes filming Steve and James talking about equipment how and why they would put it somewhere and use it through to Steve on the staircase where most of the experiences have been reported setting up infra infrasound equipment and explaining why it would be used and and what stuff was actually coming in and what was being shown on the laptop you know what are these sound waves? What do they represent? What do they mean? Mm -hmm. How would that relate to experience? Oh, that's pretty good. It, it all looked good when, I mean, it was, you know, it seemed like a lot in those days. And I'm thinking back, I think, wow, we actually got quite a lot done. But in no mm -hmm. way did it represent the whole idea of, well, Steve had an infrared camera, Cal had an infrared camera, Anne had an infrared camera, and we all went our separate ways and just filmed ourselves in the dark. That didn't happen. The only people that had that were the camera crew, and that was just so they could actually see what we're doing sat there making notes and, and the reason had... we were in the dark is because there was no electricity yeah <laughs> we couldn't yeah. Have the <laughs> there were certain areas that did though so once we'd finished our hour of sat in a particular location taking notes we go back down to the hub which was full of light so Anne could do her work take notes mm -hmm. you could take a coffee break someone else would switch again and, and that was it we were using torches just so we didn't fall over and we could get to where we needed to sit down and just take in the take in the building take in the room that you're in it was a good representation and they mixed it up with various other things they were looking at for the entirety of the documentary. Um, but if you put it all together, if you're just to see what we did, um, lots of things were going on that shows that, look, it can still be quite a minefield of different things going on if you've got a, a good group of people. But in no way does it represent how we're seeing these TV portrayals at all. It was a very systematic process or, you know, someone saying, show me which rooms you're going to go in and why and how. So that there was a segment of steve drawing a bunny rabbit um, <laughs> uh, but sort of making notes as well we'll start in this room and we'll move to that room um through to um you know we'll, we'll go and sit and make some notes in here or we'll, we'll go and scout out the building for different things people might you know think something's jumped out of them this face in the wall and that but we'll look for these pareidolia effects it all looked good uh brought together. Well, i remember I, tony I, cornell I, doing stuff like that well if you, we, we, if, if you remember it, 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 yeah, but I was going to say, in fairness, uh, you had uh, Japan's leading documentary producer, um, mm. who was who was you know, he is NHK's you know, number one documentary guy. Uh, and fortunately, of course, I grew up as as did Anne in the world of making documentaries, where you do you do what you need to do, and the camera crew will try and get what they can from it. You might have to recreate the odd thing here and there for the camera. Um, and so when you put those elements together, what we're, what we're aiming to show or what the documentary is aiming to show are a representation of the steps of an investigation, not the actual mm. investigation itself. And NHK, I think, you know, it was like working in the old days with Discovery um, where you were educating as well as entertaining because there was some you know we we included some of the or we hoped we'd included some of the humor um and some of the sort of personality that comes across and just to correct one thing cal a question uh, though uh, i was just going to correct one small, small thing cal said that it wasn't a real um underneath the documentary because we had three days unlimited access to the location we did actually carry out quite a series of um systematic measurements of the electrum the um uh, uh, radio frequency electromagnetic okay. magnetism in the building 
Uh, oh, I point... remember, yes, yes, I remember. Yes. I remember James yes. followed up on that. He did send yes. email. I remember. I, did, I yes. didn't remember what you did with that, but now now you say yes. that, that does. Yes. You see, because you have these opportunities coming your way, and we did with I'm Famous and Frightened, the celebrity ghost hunting one, where you're given the keys to a building for three or four days, and, you know, it can be a, a Premier League um, building um, that you would never get anywhere near. But you want to find out more about it, more about the experiences that people have had there. And it, it just to, you know, sort of swan and swan around like, you're, oh, I'm a celebrity, I'm on television. You know, we were given a great opportunity and um, to throw that opportunity away by not trying to grab some data while you're there, I think is it's a lost opportunity. I, I have a, a question that kind of, bothered me uh what cal said and also what uh, steve said and and that was ann's role in this thing because mm-hmm. you portray her basically as a reporter a typist that's all just taking thing what what happened to that data was it ever would you ever do with it in other words what well well that data was gathered Anne's role right well that data was actually gathered and used by us because um at the time, you know, Margam is a place that interests us. And we had an opportunity of having a team um, of of people and some um, from the media in the building all at the same time. Now, we couldn't study the Japanese, unfortunately, but we could study our own team and how they were responding in the environment. And the only way to, to know how somebody feels or how they're responding is in the form of their notes and journals. Uh, which our team keep extensively. And what Anne was showing on camera was uh, that process of going through the journals and the notes and teasing information about the human experience. Now, yes, on camera, it does look like somebody with a laptop just typing. Mm. Um, but that's that's so what that's what just an unfortunate way it's portrayed. Data? What does she actually do with the data is what I'm trying to say. Does she analyze it in some aspect? And, oh, yeah. And what, aspect does. Is it, what aspect is it analyze this? Right. Well, what we're looking at is how we are, we are responding to the stimuli, uh, the stimuli being all of the things that are happening around us in the building. Now, Cal can give a much more sort of in-depth psychologist's answer in a minute because Anne isn't here. Um, but what we're looking for are specific things like uh within our team so are people do do some individuals have a propensity for hearing things or do individuals some individuals have uh, are more likely to see something and we test these ideas and these are the ideas that led to the infrasound experiments um you know are some people more susceptible than others we don't have you know huge research budgets but we have a group of people who we can kind of test and and look at the data to see if there are any ideas that are worth following up and one of those was in fact um, how people were responding to uh, stimuli that they weren't aware of you know predominantly infrasound but also electromagnetism because you can't hear it and you can't smell it or taste it and yet you respond to it and it, we were looking at, and what Anne was identifying is that not everybody was responding in the same way. Some people seemingly were unaffected. Some people were more affected. Some people were affected differently than somebody else. So um, that's why we use 
a psychologist, and that's Anne's uh, role in parascience. Um, I think it's best to refer to Cal now to talk about the role of psychologists in field investigating and what you know what else they can get out of it. I mean, with that, the data that's gathered, um, yes, you can look at all those relationships between male and female differences. Anne also had the floor plan, so she knew mm -hmm. which rooms people were actually reporting back from. And that can also correspond to, well, which rooms have actually ever had reports mm -hmm. in them compared to, you know, a decoy room, essentially. Someone's been sat in a room that's never had activity. What are they reporting there? Um, on a basic level, um, if you wanted to analyse those and then show as a presentation, a scientific report, what's going on, you could use histograms and percentages of so many experiences here compared to here, male and female differences and so forth. You could also then use, because this is qualitative data, this is written data, you could take it from that numbering format, let's reduce it down to numbers through to how can we actually translate these words into what we understand about the experience? So one is you could, it's called a thematic analysis. You could look at common themes of experiences people seem to have in this given location. And those themes that you generate from this, this process, I won't go into how you do that process, but the themes that emerge from the data could tell us more about what we already know about infrasound, EMF and personality differences, sex differences and so on. You could also, uh, what else could you do? You could do a grounded theory approach. So um, Becky Smith, um, who's part of ASAP, her PhD um, was at Coventry University looking at the census of hallucinations, again, doing an online survey. But for her master's degree, she focused on hauntings purely. And she went to a well-known haunted pub that was also um, a and b and she looked at the guest book and she analysed people's haunting experiences that they reported in this guest book over many years. They got all mm -hmm. the guest books over a long period to see if there was a consistent theme that would lead to some sort of theory for their haunting experiences. Mm -hmm. um, not to ruin the whole thing, there was no consistent theory. It was so sporadic and intermittent. Nothing really seemed to tie together as to why as a whole people were having these experiences. And that's why also we can't really put universal explanations down to why people have these experiences. You've got to judge each location and person's experiences mm -hmm. on their merits. But in that live investigation at Margham, we, we can look at what's going on in the here and now, and we can compare it to previous experiences in those rooms. We can at least understand the data as we're collecting it there and then. With what Becky was doing, it was very past tense and trying to, in present day, figure out what's going on from something that's already happened that I so, can't monitor as it's happening. And what, and what it, Anne it, was also it, doing in is... A real... we, sorry, I was Go going ahead. to say, we, we've, we've had the advantage of visiting Margam on you know, a lot of occasions prior to that uh, documentary visit. And we had, because it's such a popular team, uh, you know, venue for the community, uh, the paranormal community, there have been hundreds of other investigators have been there. And we have, you know, down the years, we, we'd already collected all of the reports that they'd made. Okay. Uh, time, but I just have one quick question, and, and I really, we're not going to be able to get to it. Uh, Cal, is, is the psychological profile of a witness important? And would that ever be taken? Um, not, not a profile in terms of someone spent a considerable amount of time with a psychologist for them to come up with a profile as in a sort of a criminal investigation. But I suppose if you really wanted to, if you wanted to look at the personality types and various other things of witnesses over time, if you got the chance to go and 
meet them or even the investigators beforehand, you, you could put together a number of validated scales on afterlife belief, paranormal belief, personality types, death anxiety and a number of things and get them to fill it in um, before the investigation. So you know where they actually stand on all of these scales that can then be fed into the computer, into Excel and SPSS to then compare it to their fellow investigators and how they differ in their reports of experiences and how that relates to prior beliefs and personality characteristics. Do you know one of the first things we give to Unfortunately, um, mem- we members? Do have to wrap it up. Well, I've got th- 10 seconds because one of the important things that Anne gives to all of our investigation team is a paranormal belief questionnaire that we all fill in. There you go. Yes, that's an important part of it. Anyway, all right, so we have to wrap it up and stay tuned for uh, Ghost Chronicles Next Generation, where we go on a road trip down I-95 to check out different haunted places. Oh, I've been on I-95. Oh, yeah, yes, you have. Anyway, so we uh, you've been listening to Ghost Chronicles International. Special guest, the rock star parapsychologist, Mr. Dr. Dr. Cal Cooper. That's me. And uh, all right. So uh, good night, all. And God bless. Hey, good night, I'll be good back. Night. I'll be back. Will. I want to tell you. I want to tell you what happened back. over the weekend. I didn't even mm-hmm. get to that. Something happened on the weekend what? that was very interesting. So we'll you mean your award? No, no, something different. Something different regarding, again, um, trying to shift people's beliefs. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good law.